is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? That this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Anthony Mattei, the co-founder and chief product officer at Arin Living. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, sustainable apartment buildings, effortless living, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Anthony Mattei is the co-founder and chief product officer at Arin Living. He has spent over 15 years in product and technology, building and designing software for some of the biggest and smallest companies and brands in the world. Anthony recently spent five years at the ASX-listed carsales.com, working on their B2B software platforms, as well as consumer-facing mobile apps. Together with Thomas Walkley, he founded Aaron Living, a resident experience company in 2018, aimed to build software for the prop tech industry. Erin Living is a resident experience company who has designed and developed a dedicated mobile app for apartment owners and tenants. Their suite of products allow residents to live effortlessly in any built environment, solving the everyday pain points of apartment living. Anthony has set out to overhaul the customer and product experience in the prop tech space, creating a unique resident-focused app that unlocks the full benefits of apartment living. Erin Living operates sustainably and efficiently, offering a completely touch-free and automated lifestyle across multi-dwelling residential. The future is bright for Erin Living, who aims to become the number one resident experience platform in Australia, New Zealand, and the rest of the world. And with that, Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Anthony, thank you so much for your appearance on the podcast. Welcome. Let's start with who you are, what you are doing, and why was Erin born? Beautiful. Thank you. Happy to chat. So my name's Anthony, co-founder and chief product officer of Erin Living. Erin is a resident experience company that enables effortless living in apartment buildings. And so what we really specifically mean by that is we build software that goes into the hands of residents who live in apartment buildings. And our software and platform allows residents to really live very conveniently, very seamlessly through our platform. We connect our residents to their building managers, to their homes, to common facility, access control, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, our whole mission is to make life very easy for people that live in apartment buildings. Why do you want to make life in apartment buildings effortless? Good question. I think when our company was born, my co-founder Thomas had spent the last 15 years in property, very specifically around property development and apartment buildings. And we initially came together to see or to brainstorm at least, you know, whether or not Erin could exist in the world. And it was really stemmed and based from a lot of problems in apartment living. There's a very, very big disconnect between tenant or a resident that moves into a building and basically has no idea how to interface with that building. And so, So what we mean by that is, you know, if you're a resident moving into a building, how do you receive parcel deliveries? How do you connect with your building manager? How do you access common amenity? And all these types of things, you know, we started with the problem first. We thought there's all these fragmented, you know, solutions out there that are not really catering for the resident first. And so we decided to start the company with, you know, the resident in mind. We build software for building management and other administrators, but our core focus is the resident and making it really convenient for people to live in these buildings. And we know like there's going to be, you know, more and more buildings that come online and that are being built. I think on average, it's somewhere between 40 and 50,000 new apartments 
being built in Victoria every year. Oh, it could be Australia-wide, actually. It might be Australia-wide, that one. And we thought there's a great opportunity to help people live, as I said, effortlessly in their built environment. Why effortlessly and not, for example, efficiently? It's a word that we use as a catch-all. Efficiently is another word that we describe as you know part of what we're doing. We also talk about living seamlessly. They all really mean the same thing. You know, we can swap one word out and add another one in, but it all really does mean that we're trying to provide this absolute convenience to people that live in these buildings. And however you want to describe it is up to the individual, but the way we describe it is effortlessly living in these buildings. How difficult it is to convince developers to use this? Because as a renter myself, I would love to use it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just don't know how the owner of the building sure. would turn to such a solution. Yeah, it's a good question. It's very different for every different property developer. So we work with some property developers that really understand the benefit of the resident experience. And very specifically, we talk about build to rent, right? So traditionally, a developer will build a building, they'll build 100 apartments, and they'll sell all of those apartments to homeowners. In the build to sell world, obviously, is very different. It's the property developer who owns all of the apartments. They don't sell them, but they are you know, they're trying to get people in to rent these homes. And the really good developers that understand that resident experience is important uh, really see benefit in what we do. And very specifically, if you can cater for the residents that live in the building and they're really happy, their life is very, really convenient and seamless and all those fancy words, you know, there's going to be more likely that a tenant will renew their lease because they're a lot happier. You can potentially as a property developer or a, you know, an administrator of a built to rent development could potentially charge more for rents right? So there's a couple of different options that we present to property developers, but they all do have a different opinion and view. We also speak with some property developers that don't necessarily see the benefit just yet. This is a very early stage in tenant experience or resident experiences. We don't have many competitors. There are a couple, but not many that are doing it as well as we think we are. Property developers who believe that the resident experience is important really take to our platform really easy. It's actually a really easy sell for some property developers. How do you see this trend among the developers? Are they more interested in general? And this is generalization. And I understand that each and every one of them is different. Is there a shift from only economic values towards creating a better experience for the renter? Yeah. Or you can convince them, but it's still based on the economic values. It's a really good point you raise. The majority of property developers are looking at how can their development, their building stand out from another building. And so that doesn't necessarily, you know, talk specifically to economics. It, it really does talk to the experience of living in a building that a property developer will build. There are a lot of property developers that are looking at the economic benefit, absolutely. And as they should in so many cases, right? Like the build to rent market is all based on economics, right? There is obviously an experience layer that goes on the top of that economics. But in most cases, if, you know, you're building a hundred apartments and you can't rent them out for the price that you need to rent them out for, then the economics don't stack up and those buildings are, you know, are running at a loss and, you know, that property developer may lose a lot of money and that may, you know, hinder their 
ability to build more property because of those economics not stacking up. So I think it's two-pronged attack and approach. It's the economics have to stack up, absolutely. But as mentioned, I think the really good property developers that really care about their brand and their legacy, they are the developers that we work with more so because they're not just looking at the dollars and cents. They are looking at that, but they are also looking at, you know, what is the experience like for residents? How does a resident lodge a defect? How do they access their apartment? You know, how do they do all these certain things? So it's not just economics, but it does play a big part. And you also mentioned that this build to rent is a new idea. Could you elaborate on a little bit more, please? Because I think that the renting economy that we are more and more renting, that's obviously an increasing yeah. trend, but I don't know whether that's a new thing. Okay. So it is absolutely a new thing in Australia. So bill to rent has a couple of names in the US. It's called multifamily. So it's named differently in different countries, but it's essentially the concept of instead of building a hundred apartments and selling them, the property developer will not sell them. They'll keep them and they just need to have people to rent those apartments and homes. I think the Australian bill to rent market only makes up like 2% of new properties being developed. Mm -hmm. It's a very small market here in Australia, but it absolutely in America, it's I think it's something where between 40 and 50% of buildings in the US are mm. multifamily, meaning built to rent, same, same, right? And we see that in the UK, see that in other countries across Europe and the Americas where, you know, more property developers are building, you know, these assets, they're keeping them, they're sales, they're not selling and they're just renting. But in Australia, it is a new concept. There's probably a handful of really good built to rent buildings in Australia. We're seeing a fair bit in Queensland, the state of Queensland, that there's a lot of activity there. Obviously, in New South Wales and Victoria, there's also a fair bit of activity in the built to rent market as well. But yeah, you're right. It is a new concept here in Australia. It's not very big, but it is growing. It's a growing market, the built to rent market. And then why did you start this company here in Melbourne, where it's just growing and not established? Let's put it that way. Well, look, we actually originally when we started the business, our concept and idea was that we would sell only to the established market existing buildings. Yeah. And so, and we've had really good success with that. We've had some really great relationships with buildings at the moment. We have a, you know, a bunch of customers that really, really absolutely rely and love the Erin platform, which is really great. You know, from a founder's point of view who we've put so much into this and, you know, literally blood, sweat and tears that go into these businesses that, you know, no one else sees, right? It's really great to sort of get that feedback. You know, when we started the company only a handful of years ago, built to rent was even newer, right? So it wasn't really you know, a big deal. But as we've evolved over the last probably three years, we're now seeing lots of activity around that build to rent sector. And we are now pivoting our platform to make sure that we cater for build to rent buildings. We do know that that's going to increase. There's going to be more and more of them. And we're going to be in the best position possible to be able to cater for those buildings and customers. Talking about the future, yep. what does the future of cities mean to you? Oh, look, it's a big question. So many ways you can answer that question. I think personally, I think one of the things when we talk about you know future cities and future living, the thing that I think about is two words I think about. One is automated and the other word is seamless. And if you put automated living 
and seamless living together. I think that there's definitely some thinking around the future of living being very automated and being very seamless in many cases. And sort of some examples of that are what we're doing at Erin is banking on smart access. Mm-hmm. So the ability to use your mobile phone as your key for your building and your home, that's a really good example of seamless living and automated living where I can click a button on Erin mobile app. I can share a key to my mum and to my dad. They can check into my home themselves. I don't physically need to be there. You know, we think about that very deeply in the company and we think that that is a really great opportunity to provide seamless living. The other area that I think, you know, again, we think about a lot in the business is more sustainable living. We do know that we're all headed towards, you know, a more sustainable way of living. And I think when we talk about future cities and, you know, living into the future, I don't think we have a choice to not be more sustainable. Our carbon footprint, we all need to make sure that we're contributing to lowering that carbon footprint. You know, we think about waste, you know, is there other opportunities into the future where you can have self-sustaining little cities and buildings where waste is turned into something a bit more meaningful than just wastes. We can provide value around using mobile phones as access. We can do away with like plastic fobs that destroy the planet always, right? So we think that there's lots of opportunity around sustainability initiatives, but living into the future has to be about automation. It has to be about convenience and it has to be about sustainability. Starting from the beginning. (laughs) In your answer, you said the future of cities and the future of living, like they were equal. Are they equal? I don't necessarily think they're equal, but I do think they are very tightly connected. I think that to live a more automated or seamless way of living can only really be executed through cities that are built to cater for that. You know, we see that there's lots of activity happening in Japan, Dubai, China, Malaysia, where they're looking at building, you know, mini cities within very large populated countries where they're building, you know, roads for autonomous vehicles. They're building roads that are separate to that for pedestrians. They're building roads for, you know, people on scooters and other mobilities. And if we take that concept and apply it to you know, living into the future, the only real way that I see that you can have a seamless way of living is that the city actually caters for the people to be able to live in those cities. So, you know, again, we talk about autonomous vehicles, we talk about sustainable design in terms of buildings, there's opportunity around, as we mentioned earlier, around like zero carbon footprints and things like that. So I think they're not necessarily the same, but they are definitely tightly connected. The city has to cater And the city is catering life for people. And to have a seamless life, we need to have a seamless city. You are coming back to this automation part. What does automation mean for you? I think automation for me means that when we connect the built world to the autonomous world, The way I think about automation is, as we've mentioned, I think there's opportunity for mobile devices to be in your pocket where doors are opening for you automatically because, you know, there's sensors that can sense you're near, elevators being able to do very similar things where we don't necessarily need to physically interface or push a button to activate things, right? So, you know, you can imagine that, you know, you walking into a building, the building knows that you've walked in, the elevator then gets called saying, Anthony has arrived 
arrived at the front door. The elevator comes down to the ground level. The elevator then lets my home know that I'm 30 seconds away to automatically turn on the heating or cooling, those sorts of connected types of living. When I think about automation, I think about those sorts of examples. So things that just happen that you don't know that they just happen. They just sort of, you know, they're autonomous, right? Like almost like when you, you know, those periods where you are walking through like automated doors and there's a sensor somewhere, it knows you're there and you just walk and it just opens up, right? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of autonomy that I think about. I'll be just for a little time the devil's advocate. How this automation will not turn out to be such a mm. dystopia we could see in, for example, the volley animation. Absolutely. I think that there's risks attached to, to all of this. <laughs> yes, I don't think it's perfect. And I don't think that we will have zero problems from it. I think consent is one word that I think about that consumers, and we talk about consumers as residents, as tenants, as anyone who lives in these types of environments, the ability to control the automation, I think, is the way to mitigate that risk. So there's automation where things will just happen and you have no control, or there's automation where you can, you know, the default position is automated, but you have the ability to override or control it. And I think in a lot of the software that we build, we give the residents and our users the ability to turn things on and off as they please. So, you know, we build technology around smart home connectivity, smart locks and, you know, smart heating and cooling, et cetera, et cetera. But that's optional. We don't force that on people. We don't necessarily say to people, only way to live in these buildings is to do these things and it has to be automated and you have no control. I think having the right consent and giving power back to consumers is mm. the way that you can mitigate some of that risk. But I do agree that if you go too far, it does become a bit of a dystopia and there are lots and lots of risks that we all need to think about. In your understanding, automation can even enhance citizens' empowerment in the city. And I may turn your words completely around. I'm just curious whether I understood it well. Can automation help empowering the citizen of the city? Because I usually get the feeling that automation is more concerning than hopeful because it will take people's jobs, we will not have to do, actually do some stuff because everything will be done instead of us. Sure. Taking away the decision from the people. And I understand both sides because there are good and bad in this automation part. Automation can enhance the power of the citizen over their own building, their own neighborhood, their own life, basically. You know, in short, I think I agree with the way that you've structured that question and the way you're thinking about it. I think there are genuine risks associated with automation. I don't think that automation is the silver bullet that, you know, you just put automation in and everything goes away. There's no problems. You know, I don't <laughs> think that at all, right? I mean, it, it's kind of nice to think about it that way, but in reality, I don't think it works that way, right? Right. So one of the things that we talk about in our business is the redistribution of time. What that for us means is very specifically, I have an example where we work with building managers quite a lot, right? A lot of our platform automates the job of a building manager. Now, mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that we're in the business of putting people out of work. We are not in the business of cutting jobs. We are not in the business of creating a negative experience for anyone in any role. The way we phrase it and the way we think about it is 
what can you leverage from our platform that allows you as a building manager to distribute your time in different ways? Mm -hmm. So for example, if you have lots of manual tasks as a building manager or, or a strata manager or whatever it may be, keys are a really good example, right? So keys, they're physical. I have to physically see you to give it to you. Property manager has to do the same. I have to keep a physical ledger of who has what key, you know, key registers and stuff like that. Our platform, platform allows anyone, any manager to push a button and give access to somebody instantly. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that people that look after key registers are going to go out of business. It just means that our platform allows them to do their job more efficiently and it frees them up to think about distributing their time in different ways. So maybe into the future, a building manager is not a building manager and maybe they become community managers so our platform, you can leverage our platform for your own time, for you as a building manager to be able to say, well, these tasks used to take me 30 hours in a week. And now these tasks take me 10 hours in a week. What am I going to do for the rest of that time? Can I then redistribute my time in a more meaningful way? So maybe that's things around providing more events in buildings, connecting with residents a bit more, looking at different ways to provide value to residents and tenants in buildings. So although I agree that autonomy and autonomous software has the potential to cut people out of jobs, I don't see it that way. And our business doesn't see it that way. We really do see it as our platform allows you to redistribute your time in a more meaningful way. Automation is the partner of the people Correct. instead of substituting them. Absolutely. And that's how I should have answered your original question because that, <laughs> that, that's exactly the way that we think about it. It's not, uh -huh. it, you know, we don't use it against people. You know, we don't go and speak to buildings and say, hey, building manager, your job is no longer. Our platform <laughs> is here to replace you. We have never had that conversation. We never want to because that's not what our business is about. What our business is about is how can you leverage our technology to create more meaningful value in your built environment? So yeah, it is absolutely, you know, we look at it as a partner. We're a technology partner of a building. We're not mm -hmm. trying to compete for people's jobs. When the ATMs were introduced first, there was the fear that bank managers and the officers working in the bank will have to leave their job. But instead, they were able to focus on the not that manual labor and the more meaningful questions with which the customers came in instead of just pushing out the money. Absolutely. And customer experience is everything, right? As I started this podcast, like we're a resident experience company. We provide really amazing experiences to people who live in buildings and that's done through our software. So I think, you know, absolutely you're right in the way that you're thinking about it. And, you know, we're here to provide value to the world, not necessarily to replace people's jobs with robots or anything like that. <laughs> if automation is not a fear, what are your three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities? I've thought about this a fair bit because we do think about you know, some of the barriers to entry for some of the technology we build. One thing I think about is, you know, one of the biggest fears or risks is adoption. Are we as a society willing to adopt this new technology and are we able to adapt 
and adopts new ways of living. I think there's genuine risk with that. And I think that's a generational difference. I think that my parents were born in the 50s and 60s are going to think very differently to myself. I was born in the 80s and my kids were you know, born in thousands or whatever. So we're all going to have different views, but I think adoption of technology within these future cities, I think is a risk because technology fatigue potentially that could mm-hmm. creep into it. I think... The other area that we think about as well is the cost of implementation of a lot of these new beautifully designed buildings. You know, we see, again, lots of activity in like Asia uh, around green buildings and very sustainable design, sustainably designed buildings. And I think there's a genuine risk around the cost of development and whether or not Mm. property developers see that as a benefit or not. If a property developer is very driven by the economics, as we mentioned earlier, but to build these future cities actually costs, you know, let's say double the price. What does that do to affordability for not only property development, but what does it also do for home ownership? Does it bump prices up going into the future? And we, we all know that we've got like affordability issues in housing at the moment. And if these buildings cost a lot more to build or these cities cost a lot more to build, what does that do to prices of property and real estate? So I think cost of implementation of these new cities is another area we think about. The third area that I think about a lot is data and privacy. As we move to a more connected future city, there's going to be way more sensors out there in the world, way more cameras out there in the world, autonomous robots, autonomous vehicles that are always capturing data, you know, from pedestrians walking across the road and, you know, riding your bike and et cetera, et cetera. And I think that one of the risks that I think about when looking into the future about these you know, future cities is what happens to the data? What happens to my privacy? What happens to all the data you're collecting about me if I'm just walking around the CBD? Do I have control over that data? What do you do with it? All these sorts of things. So I think you know, data and privacy, and we get asked that question a lot from our customers and potential customers is, what do you do with our data? How do you keep it secure? How do you keep it private? And all those sorts of things. So I think there's a genuine fear around these future cities and the amount of technology that will be built into them and what we do with data and privacy. What do you do with data and privacy? We don't do much with it, to be honest. Right now, as we stand, we don't necessarily use it We don't necessarily use it to have a negative impact on anyone's life, right? So the metrics and the data that we keep are, well, number one, they're completely encrypted and anonymized. So we don't necessarily know who is doing what in these sorts of buildings. But we keep general, I guess, score of how our platform is being used and how residents are interfacing with their buildings. The one thing we do do is we do speak with property developers about building usage, So some of the data that we capture, so for example, amenity bookings, right? If there's a certain amenity that gets highly used or there's an amenity in a building that never gets used, is there an opportunity for us to be able to send that data back to property developers and say, hey, the next time you design a building, maybe you should consider these things because what we know is you know, how residents really actually interface with these certain facilities in buildings. That's really the extent that we go to with our data, but we don't sell it anywhere. We don't utilize it in any other way other than product improvements. And, you know, as I said, speaking to property developers to be able to design better buildings in the future. And you mentioned technology adoption. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's a choice to adopt technology rather a must-have 
already. I understand the different levels, obviously. So for example, your Erin product is getting live and increasing in usage. I just don't really know whether in the near future there won't be either Erin everywhere or similar products which would help the efficiency, the seamlessness of a city, of a city living. Do you think it's optional to adopt technology? Good question. The technology in me or the technologist in me <laughs> says that no, you know, there is no way to avoid it. I think mm -hmm. there's opportunity to limit technology mm -hmm. usage. And I think there's benefit in actual fact to limit some of your technology usage, right? However, I think going into the future, and we touched on it earlier, talking about generational shifts and generational differences. When I think about my kids, so I've got three kids, one is almost six, one is three, and one is three months old. I think about them and I think about them into the future and say to myself, is there going to be an option for them to opt out of technology? And I don't think there is. I really don't think that there is. I think there's opportunity to limit, as I said, or at least be conscious of the usage of technology. To avoid it completely, maybe a city is not for you. If you're living in a city and if you're living in communities where they are high density living areas, it's really going to be hard to avoid it. But again, if we think about the positive side of it, like you want to avoid bad technology, but you mm -hmm. don't want to avoid good technology. Mm -hmm. So I think it's contextual. I think it depends. There's no real way to answer that. Are we talking about technology where we have, let's talk about COVID-19 for two seconds, right? If we have a building that is completely touch-free, so mm -hmm. access, we talk about, again, we talk about access and your building senses that you're near and it will open all these doors, elevators will come, they'll go, you'll be able to access your apartment. You've walked all the way into the front of your building, gone all the way up to your apartment and you haven't touched a thing. Is that such a bad thing? Mm -hmm. Is that a bad use of technology? Like probably not. I think it's actually a very good use of technology in the modern world. However, you can abuse that. And I think, again, like there's lots of examples of bad technology being abused and lots of people wanting to opt out of that because they are fearful of it. They're fearful of it from a health perspective. What does all the technology around me do to my body? Maybe it does nothing. Maybe it does something. We don't know just yet, but there's definitely concerns that people do have and will have going into the future around too much technology. But I think it's all contextual. And I think if the technology is providing immense value, then I think it's going to be really hard to avoid it. Do you think that there is good and bad technology Because you were talking about, at the same time, good and bad technologies, but good and bad uses of technologies. Yeah, I was going to say, to oversimplify and say good or bad is yeah. probably not the right way to articulate it. I think, you know, the other area that I think about is intent of technology. Okay. What is the intent of the technology? You know, the people and the founders and, you know, the employees building technology companies, what's the intent? Is it actually to make life easier for people? Is it to gather lots of information and retarget people with ads? So I think you're right. There's no real way to articulate good or bad technology. I think it's the way that technology is used that makes it maybe good or bad in air quotes. But I think what's more relevant or more important than good or bad is intent. What are the technologists behind the technology? Why did they start that company? Why are they building those products and services? And if that for me equates to we want to make the world a better place, 
then to me, that's a great thing and we should do more of it. So technology can be a concern, but an opportunity as well. So let's talk about what are your three biggest opportunities regarding the future of cities? I think personally, at a personal level and even at a business level, I think the future of cities looks to me and the, the biggest opportunities that I see are better life experiences. So let's break that down. What do we mean by that, right? What do we mean by better life experience? Well, if there are autonomous vehicles that have the understanding that I'm walking up to an autonomous vehicle depot where I want to catch one to go to my meeting or go to school or work or whatever it might be, I think there's a great opportunity to create better life experiences than waiting in the rain at Flinders Street Station, waiting for a train to come and it's delayed and, you know, blah, 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 and blah, 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 right? So there's great opportunity around commuting, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about commuting is something that we all do quite a lot of. Obviously, through the pandemic, we've done a lot less commuting, Mm -hmm. but eventually we'll all get back to some normality and we'll be commuting more. So in the future, if there's opportunity to create seamless commuting, that's a really great thing, right? That's a really great life experience. I also think that spending more time living rather than, it's funny that you mentioned like earlier about people's jobs being potentially being taken over by software. Like I don't see it necessarily that way. I think autonomy is one of the biggest opportunities in these you know, future cities. But what it equates to is me allowing me to have more time to be freed up to do other things. So, you know, if I have, and maybe this is a silly example, but it's, I think, a genuine example. If I have an automated lawn mowing robot, let's just go with it for a thought, yeah, right? Yeah, that's, that's a really good idea. Right? <laughs> which, which, by the way, do exist, right? So they do exist. Yeah, yeah. And I don't have to mow my lawn every Saturday for three hours. Let's just go with it. And I know mm-hmm. we're talking about cities and apartments, but let's, you know, broaden Still. the thinking. And I've saved myself every week, two hours or three hours or even half an hour, whatever it may be, then I can, again, redistribute my time that I've gained through Mm -hmm. autonomous technology that I can now spend with my family. Mm -hmm. I can spend with my kids going on walks. I can spend creating art, creating music, creating Mm -hmm. all sorts of things. And I think we become a bit more, maybe it's the optimist in me that I think about, but like, I think humans will be able to create more great things in the world if we have, you know, more time to do it. You know, Mm -hmm. we all spend 50 hours a week working, 30, 40, 100, whatever it is in your role. But imagine if lots of things were autonomous and you could create these better life experiences because all the mundane tasks of life have been taken care of for you by the robot who will deliver the package by the robot that will cut your lawn, the robot that will do the dishes for you, you know, all these sorts of examples, right? I think it allows us to create more time for ourselves and in short, have better life experiences. To have a much more meaningful life. If we think about that on a different scale and we think about if the standard work week was actually three days a week, let's just say, and I spent less time working for my money, would I then have more opportunity to create better life experiences, have more meaningful life? Because the one thing that nobody's figured out is time, right? And can't get it back. No one can create more time unless we redistribute our time into more meaningful activity. There's lots of thoughts around that that we think about. You know, looking into the future, the options that consumers will have will increase. So things around 
you know, micro mobility. So micro mobility is obviously electronic scooters, the ability to be able to commute to specific places, not necessarily using traditional transport, like a train or a bus or whatever. So I think that Going into the future as consumers and as humans, we will have way more options around, you know, commuting. It won't just be the train or the bus. It will be autonomous vehicles. It will be electric scooters. We're already seeing that in, you know, Melbourne and Sydney and New York and London and lots of these large cities where instead of driving, I'll just ride my scooter. It's quicker. It's better for the environment. It's in some cases more fun. So I think transport and commuting is a very big area. And I don't pretend to have all the answers on what the future looks like when it comes to transport or commuting. But I do think that going into the future, we as consumers will absolutely have way more options to getting around. And if you look at the traditional car ownership model, through the pandemic for two years, I paid car registration and car insurance the whole time. Now, that was a complete, in some cases, complete waste of money, right? Insurance, you sort of need, you know, just in case and all those things. But you're still coming up with dollars and cents to pay for this piece of plastic and metal to sit in your car spot in your basement or whatever, to just sit there and do nothing. So I think that what we've learned out of some of the last couple of years is there has to be more ways of, or more options, right? Like more ways of getting around, more ways of muting. As humans, we love choice, right? We love more choices. We love more things. It's always more, more, more. And I think that property developers and even you know local governments and state governments will start to design cities that don't require cars and don't require car ownership. You know, there's also a lot of thought around 20-minute cities where you've got the ability to be in and out of any sort of central business district within 20 minutes and you don't need a car, right? So can you be using services like all the car sharing services that are around and bike sharing and scooter sharing and all those sorts of things? So I think choice is really what we're talking about and ability to choose better ways of transport. You already mentioned technology fatigue, and there is a thing called decision fatigue. Absolutely. How we will not get decision fatigue, for example, about commuting in the future when we have so many options and we just need to choose one, but it's impossible. Well, if everything's autonomous, then some of the choice goes away, right? So let's think about that. So... <laughs> So you're talking about choice of, do I take a scooter to work or do I take a car to work? Like a, you know, exactly. an autonomous car. My question would be, does it matter? Like, what's the difference, right? Let's remove price, like economics, right? You mm -hmm. know, a car may cost more than a scooter and so on and so forth. And there's some economic sense that's behind it. But if an autonomous vehicle just appears and has a big sign on the front of it says, hey, I'm here for Anthony. Like, you know, those people at airports that hold the signs mm -hmm. for arrivals, does choice actually matter? And maybe it doesn't. However, I understand why you asked that question. And I, I absolutely understand and appreciate why more choice is not necessarily a good thing. And, and I think there's lots of really good examples of that in the world of physical stores and very specifically around supermarkets. There is always a select number of peanut butters jams, butters, and other options. There's never a limitless or endless amount of options. And that's specifically designed to make choosing a product really quick and easy when you know, you're an aisle and you just want to get this coffee instead of that coffee. I don't want 20 options. I just want two. Mm -hmm. It makes the decision-making process a lot simpler. So yeah, I, I agree with the way that 
you're thinking about it and I agree that too much choice is not necessarily a good thing, but I can't see how we can avoid it. I can't see just yet how more choice isn't going to be the default position of the way we live into the future. If you look like even 10 years ago, not even 10 years ago, go back five years ago or maybe six, how many streaming options were there? Not that many, right? One, a couple. How many are there, you know, in 2022? I had to think about that for a second. You know, how many streaming options do we have now? There's probably 10, there's probably 15. I'm not sure, right? I haven't counted, but there's a lot more. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I'm not sure what the answer is, but I do think it's inevitable that more choice becomes the standard way of living. Will these many choices be available for everyone? That is a really good question. I think going into the future, I don't know if everyone is the right word I would use, but I think more, right? So I think technology becoming more and more embedded into society and into children coming into becoming home buyers and people who will live in cities eventually, or some of them will, it's a little hard to kind of, again, ignore that sort of factor, right? As technology becomes more accessible for more people, I think that these choices will become, again, more accessible for more people. If you look at the price of technology, like all new technology is really expensive at the start and then it becomes down in price. I remember the days of like, you know, big screen TVs, like big CRT monitors, you know, they were like $20,000. Now for like 500 bucks, you can get like a 70 inch, you know, blah, blah, blah sort of TV, right? So I think as technology going into the future, hopefully becomes more continues the trajectory or the opposite of a trajectory to become more cheaper, the technology will become more accessible and therefore options will, you know, I think get into the hands of more people, but I don't think it's everyone. I don't think everyone, for a couple of reasons, I don't think everyone wants that. I think there are people in the world that don't love the fact that there's this much technology in the world we live in people that may want to check out of, you know, what we call traditional society and move out to a, you know, a self-sustaining farm where they can grow their own vegetables and have their own, you know, animals and things like that. Those people that want to live in that way, I respect absolutely those people more than anything and they should do that. And they're not necessarily going to be the people that we're talking about in this conversation. But I think everyone is the right way to phrase it. But I do think more options for more people will become a default position. First question is... Isn't leaving this technology frequency behind, isn't that a choice? Yes. (laughs) So basically, they also have the choice. In your answer, again, this is my interpretation, please correct me if I'm wrong. You alluded to the choice as based on the availability of technology. Does technology make choice available only? I don't think only, no, but I think it's the catalyst for all the choice that we have in the world. So maybe some examples of that are yesterday was the 11th of January, which marked the 15 years of Steve Jobs releasing or announcing the iPhone. And when we cast our minds back to 15 years ago, think about our choices that we had back then, right? Like Mm -hmm. think about the way to get around, you know, Melbourne city, for example, it's the city I live in and the one I know the best. It was a train or a cab. That was the only way you could get around, basically. Or you know, or you drive your own car, right? Or walk mm-hmm. or whatever. Think about the choices we have now, right? We have bikes, we have scooters, we have Uber, we have Lyft, we have DD, we have many, many choices for living our lives, but it's all through technology. It's all through mobile apps. It's all through software. It's all through 
I believe the, the entrepreneurship of people building companies and building technology that want to make the world a better place. And part of making the world a better place is more options. Now, it's not the only way to make the world a better place. And I also don't pretend I know the answer to making the world a better place. However, I do think that technology has its place for creating choice, creating options for people. So I do think that technology is the catalyst for a lot more choice. Good, but great question. Like it's very interesting to think about it that way because as I said, 15 years ago, before the iPhone was released or before any real smartphone was really released, like, you know, think about food delivery. Food delivery was like you ring the pizza shop. That was it. Or like, you know, big food chains. Now you have, if I was to open up Uber Eats right now or any of the, you know, DoorDash or any of these companies apps, I have so much choice. And again, back to your original point is more choice better. No, when it comes to food, it's not for me. <laughs> more, more choice is not better when it comes to food. I actually want less options because then I like flick through my, you know, Uber Eats app for like, you know, and you probably do it as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> so again, context and intent, which we spoke about earlier was really important mm-hmm. as well, because when it comes to food, maybe more choice is not necessarily better, but maybe transport, you know, more choice is better. I'm just asking this because, yeah. for example, if you are talking about cities, yep. there are so many things which are not necessarily connected to technology. So, for example, when developing a neighborhood, there is the choice to put in more buildings or a park instead mm-hmm. of a building, for example. And that doesn't really depend on the technology. But I understand that In your interpretation, technology creates the option to create even more choices. Yeah. And I think, you know, technology, you know, it's such a broad term, right? We use the word technology (laughs) in so many different ways. And, you know, what does that even mean? But, you know, I think it depends, right? Again, context, right? Social media as technology, Mm -hmm. is that better for society or not? Facebook and Instagram released some interesting studies a while ago. No, not not a while ago. Very recently, it was probably a few months ago around girls the age between like 10 and 15 and the body issues that they have mentally and some of these social pressures that we all face, not just men, women, or anyone else. It's not necessarily about that, but it's about the social pressure of what we all think is normal and what we all think is, you know, happy and sad and and all these sorts of things. So technology at a social level, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's not. But again, when we apply technology to other things and other areas of life, like absolutely, yes, it's a great thing. You know, let's talk about agriculture, right? Ag tech, right? If I'm a farmer and I utilize technology for me to be, I know we're talking about cities in this podcast, but like- No, 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 no. The hinterland behind the cities where the resources coming from, Yep, those are also part of the city. It should be considered as part of the city. Absolutely. And if I've been able to implement technology, you know, at a sensor level and I get a push notification to my phone saying, you know, hey, you know, you need to go water this thing or automation and I can grow bigger crops and feed more people, it's a great use of technology, right? Like it's a really good way to utilize it. So it's, again, it's very different for different people, for different industries. And, you know, we can all probably agree that There's some technology that doesn't necessarily make our lives better, that has negative impacts that we could probably do without, we probably don't need and don't necessarily need to rely on. But I think that's just an evolution of 
you know, humanity in society, right? Like we have entrepreneurs building technology and companies or software engineers and programmers and, and everyone, designers and all types of people that are building technology where they have a hunch. They believe in themselves that if I build this technology, that the world will be a better place. But it's not as simple as that. And it doesn't necessarily always equal more technology is better for cities or for anyone. So, you know, I don't think technology is the silver bullet for all of the things, you know, you mentioned earlier, like a park, it's got nothing to do with technology. <laughs> do I think a park's a really good idea? Yes. Is it better than some technology? Yes, it is, right? Like there's benefit and merit to all these things. I don't think, you know, tech is the only way to think about the world. I think that mindful technology usage is much more interesting to think about. What are the three biggest strengths regarding the future of cities? I think it has to be one of the biggest strengths around future cities is the livability, right? Like living in them, I think, becomes potentially such an amazing experience, right? Again, you know, if we look at buildings that are completely sustainable, that, you know, capture sunlight into the building, it stores it into a battery, redistributes it out to maybe it's other buildings on a similar network, or, you know, you could sell that back to the grid. I think these are really great things for all of us involved. Melbourne at one point was the most livable city. You know, why is that, right? So I think going into the future, I think these mini cities that are being created, you know, as we speak, I think the livability is number one, right? I think they become way more livable. I think people will become, you know, happier. I think if you can, you know, not have to worry about standing at the train station in the rain, like I've done for many years, waiting for a train, like I can avoid all of that. Maybe that's a great thing. And I think, you know, that contributes to livability. The other thing I think one of the biggest strengths around, you know, future cities is what have we learned from the last hundred years of building cities? Was it a great idea to build, you know, a football stadium in the middle of a city? Is it a great idea to build a train station in the middle of a city or whatever it might be? And I think the learnings that we've had over the last, you know, call it 50 years, call it 100 years. I'm not sure the right time frame to reference, but I think the education and like what we've learned from the last period of time will help us build these better cities and they will You know, hopefully the idea is that it affects humanity in a more positive way and, you know, everyone becomes a lot happier for living in them rather than living in different areas. So I think one of the biggest strengths is knowledge and the learnings that we've had from designing cities in the last hundred years. Is livability measured as the happiness of people living in the city? I don't think it is. Then what is livability? Well, I think that livability is comes in a number of forms. I think, again, it's like that catch-all word we use, like technology, right? It's like this catch-all. Okay. I think happiness is absolutely one of those metrics to look at, right? And I say that as, a, you know, I made a joke earlier about it. But, you know, if we're all in really good mental states because of where we live, mm-hmm. I think the world is, irrespective of technology, the world is a much better place for it. If we're all happier, if we're all satisfied as people, are we fulfilled in our working environments? Like we live in, you know, a city, we work in a city, you know, we have recreational activity in certain cities. And what makes something livable? Is it the ability to go out and book restaurant dinners, you know, every week? Is it the ability to access healthcare? Is it the ability to move around really easily around these cities? I think all of it contributes to livability. And I think technology can enhance that livability, right? I think there's absolutely a place for it. But again, it's not the be all and end all for livability. There's also, you know, weather. Weather contributes to livability. Like mm-hmm. 
can't really control the weather through an iPhone app or whatever, right? So I think there's many things to think about schooling and education, transport, basic essential services, right? Like, you know, food and shelter and the ability to rent properties and buy properties and the ability to move around these cities. So yeah, I think it's obviously made up of a lot of things, but we at our business and as people building technology, we think that technology has its place to create more livable cities um, and hopefully create happier humans. Due to COVID-19, Do you think that the city is a place to live, work, study and have healthcare? I think what we've learned, one of the biggest lessons we've learned is location is not necessarily the largest factor for success. Okay. So let's break that down. So in our business, we're a software company. The location of our employees does not matter. Time zones don't really matter. They matter to some degree, but they don't matter. Whether you work in the morning or at night doesn't really matter. There's a 24-hour window of time that everybody gets. Everyone gets the same amount of time. It's how you distribute your time against these things. So Yeah. So as mentioned, I think the lesson we've learned from COVID is that location is not necessarily that the biggest factor. So You know, our homes, like I'm working from home right now. I've been into the office a couple of times this year, but not much. So my home is my workplace. My workplace is my home. I think going forward, they all merge into like one thing. I think it's like, and I don't really know how to coin, like I don't know how to phrase it. To me, it's all a bit of a blur. Like where you live and where you work, unless your work requires you to physically, you know, you work on a farm or you work in a manufacturing plant or something like that, where you you physically have to be there. There's no delineation between the two. They're one and the same. Work and home has now become the same thing. You can do that in a city. You can do that in a remote area, potentially. You can do that kind of anywhere. But I think the thing that we've learned is that, especially in our businesses, location has no impact on whether or not we are successful in building our company or building our technology for cities. We could all be living on farms and building software for cities or technology mm-hmm. for cities, right? So location is one factor. And I think obviously the work from home thing is going to be, I think we're all going to go back to offices to some degree, but I think what we've learned from the pandemic is looking at new and innovative ways to work. Are you more productive at home at night to work? Are you more productive during the day to work? You know, nine to five is just an arbitrary time frame mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. all agree is the right way to think about the world, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like that going into the future. So these buildings that are being built now, like a lot of buildings have like a co-working space in them. They have breakout areas in, you know, the lobby area or the foyer of these beautiful brand new buildings that are catering for people to work from home, but also utilizing those spaces for anything and becoming, I think, more flexible. So yeah, like flexibility is another word that I would think about when we talk about like work, live and play in these cities and in these buildings. And, you know, I think COVID taught us that like there's no more rules to life. <laughs> like it's it's a lot different, isn't it? All the rules just got thrown out of the window. Yeah. And that's why I'm asking because yeah. uh, in the last 50 years or I don't know, we identified the city as the place to work. Yeah. Yep. And it seems that the city needs to reinvent itself or people need to reevaluate what the city means to them because we don't have to go to the center or to the city to work anymore because we can work from home. And that's why I was asking. Yeah. And the more business, you know, originally... If 
funny. Like I was speaking to someone, I think it was January of 2020. It was a family relative, <gasps> right? Yeah. And I don't know, I bumped into this person. It was during the week and I think it was on my lunch break and I was working from home that day. This is pre-COVID. He said to me, hey, going, what's happening? I said, oh, I'm just working from home. And he said, working from home? He's like, mm-hmm. like laughed at me. And he's like, you're not working from home. Nobody works from home. Like you, <laughs> you must be playing video games or something. And I was like, well, no, like, no, I'm working from home. Two months later, COVID hit and here we are. And why I raise that is we all quickly adapted very, very, very quickly to the city not being the only place that work happens. The city is just another location where work can happen, but it is not dependent on work happening. And so the work from home concept obviously is here to stay. I think there's going to be lots more flexibility. And yes, I agree that cities need to reinvent themselves. And I think one of the ways to do that is through these buildings, building amenity in buildings that have co-working spaces, building quiet areas for people to just relax. Maybe they want to meditate. Maybe they want to read a book. Maybe they want just quiet time to do their work in their building or, mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. So, you know, property developers need to get creative. And as again, I go back to the generational differences as my kids come through the system and they become home owners or renters or whatever, the expectation is that the buildings they live in have these sorts of amenity in them. It's just going to become the norm and the expectation of what people are looking for. Okay. And my last question, because I'm very conscious of the time. No, that's right. What does sustainability mean to you? You know, the word sustainability is like the word technology. Again, it's like a catch-all sort of word. The way we look at sustainability in our business is we've broken it up into a couple of different areas. We break it up into financially sustainable buildings, as well as environmentally sustainable buildings. And the financial aspect is very interesting. We've got some, which I don't necessarily want to go into too much detail around, but we have some really innovative initiatives on how we can have buildings that are financially sustainable where they are an economy within themselves and there's money coming in and money coming out of these buildings and the fees of living in these buildings could potentially be reduced. There's a possibility of that. So we look at sustainability in a couple of different areas like financially sustainable and environmental. The environmental component is the technology we are building around water leak sensors, gas leaking sensors, power usage, power storage, solar, waste, and these sorts of things. And we've got lots of really cool initiatives on, you know, how do we get buildings more sustainable? Like how can we, through our platform, you know, help save the planet? Like we've all got a bit of a duty of care to kind of contribute to some degree. And, um, you know, the environmental aspect for us is really important. We have Abby Freestone who works with us in our company. She's our head of sustainability and communities, has a really great take on sustainability and what that means for her. But for me, it's not just the environment. Yes, it is the environment. Absolutely. But we also look at it in a couple of different lights. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. I highly appreciate your answers. Do you have any closing thoughts, requests for the audience? As people adopting the technology that companies like us are building is don't necessarily have a closed mind on technology, right? There's so many great ways that technology has enhanced our lives. I think we're a better society for it. I think there's some exceptions for that, but I think overall we are much better for technology being in our lives. So I think, you know, have an open mind to technology. Don't be scared of it. Don't be afraid of it. Like really ironic and interesting thing about technology is that humans build it in most cases, right? And then we can talk about AI and another podcast and self-sustaining sort of software. And that's not for now, mm-hmm. but you know, 99% of technology that's built is built by humans. And don't think there's many people that build technology 
with ill intent that want to make people's lives harder or more destructive. So have an open mind, embrace it. It's here to stay. Don't fight the wave, just ride it and enjoy it. That's pretty much it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you. It was really good to hear from Anthony how their approach to sustainable and effortless living helps apartment renters in the cities to really experience better quality of life, not to mention his view on automation, enhancing human work rather than eliminating it. You can find out more about Anthony online or the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Anthony's approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF for Cities or on the website where the transcripts and show notes are available. Additionally, I will highly appreciate if you consider subscribing. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast? 